Welcome back to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. I am so excited to have back with us our old co-host, Jaskarn Sandhu. Jaskarn, how are you today? Waheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Waheguru Ji Ki Fateh. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things where uh, when when Jaspreet Kaur comes calling and saying, we need an expert who really knows his stuff. Uh, and he wasn't available, so can you come instead? You have to say yes. Can we can we be realistic with our because we out of respect for our listeners, you got volunteered by Harmon. Yes, I, We're happy I was to literally have, very happy to have you back. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. This is always fun. It's a fun um, topic. We got fun topic. It is. It is. So we got some exciting things we're going to talk about today. We had the last time Herman and I chatted. Um, we talked about the things that were important for six and the election. We went over the World Sick Organization Sick uh, Election Guide. This time we're going to do a bit of a post mortem. So we're going to do an election debrief. We're going to talk about the big um, Modi visit to the United States. Modi and Biden got together and hung out. And then we're going to talk about what happened in England. So our Canadian podcast is bringing a sick Canadian perspective to some global events. The election. The best thing that I heard about this election was it could have been an email. Um, I don't know who, who said that. I can't even credit to the right person. I heard um, Matt Galloway say it on CBC, which I was surprised to hear it coming out of his mouth. We are kind of right back where we started. Some interesting things happened along the way. Uh, just kind of generally, what are, you, what are your takeaways from this election? Well, another great take that made me laugh was um, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, just uh, just did a $600 million cabinet shuffle. Uh, oh, which is, yeah. Uh, which is another apt way of describing what we what we saw. Look, I, I think the easy criticism of this election uh, is to say that it was a waste of time. Watch, and you know, I, I guess across some metrics would be true, um, but there there were some interesting outcomes from this election. You know, it is kind of interesting. We came back almost with the same exact parliament as far as numbers are concerned, um, mm. and it's another minority government where the Liberals are going to have to work with the NDP and the Conservatives to get things through. Uh, and, you know, that, it is a little interesting that two years later, we've, we've been returned the, back with the same parliament. Um, but you also saw some significant changes, right? You uh, in, in Alberta, uh, more than other places, I think you know, uh, we finally have uh, two MPs from the governing party. Uh, so before this, the Liberals, the governing Liberals, were totally boxed out uh, from the West. Uh, and had no representation. Now they got two MPs. Uh, one of them is George Jahal, uh, hmm. whose father was, for uh, for the folks in the WSO universe uh, that uh, know this, uh, his father was one of the you know original kind of founding members of the World Sick Organization. Uh, so a, a bit of a sick advocacy legacy there uh, in the George uh, Jahal family. Um, I'm sure you, we can talk about some other things about George Jahal, uh, but uh, George is a, is a good guy. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to see him in Parliament. And you, you've seen a lot of other folks come back. You know, you see Sajjan come back, Randeep Sarai, Sukhtaliwal. Uh, in Brampton, you saw all the uh, MPs from Brampton return. Um, you know, you see some sick MPs not coming back. You know, Gagin Sikand uh, didn't run. Uh, he was in Misaga Streetsville. Uh, Jati Sidhu and Kitchener didn't uh, return. Um, you know, and there's uh, there's uh, Raj Sani. Uh, Sani, sorry, was the one in Kitchener that, that's not coming back. Uh, so there's... There's a few uh, different MPs uh, that have 
shuffled out, uh, as well as former ministers uh, that were are no longer going to be in parliament. Uh, so there's been interesting outcomes, even though, you know, at a macro level, this is more or less the same parliament. Yeah. So what is I've been hearing is uh, some interesting things like um, <clears throat> that six used to have the ability to vote as a group and as a block. And if we went forward with one set of interests, we would be persuasive and we would have power. Um, so things like even asking for uh, support with the six and Hindus in Afghanistan, if we have power as a voting group, then we have the ability to ask for those things. And that in recent years, that's diminished. The Sikh vote has diversified as we see representation across parties. When you're looking specifically at things like George Jahul and you see just this like wall of blue or wave of blue or whatever it is, and you see uh, someone come through. Do you think that there is still, and maybe even in Brampton, do you still think there is power in six as a voting group and that it makes sense to put out something like an election guide where we consolidate all of our interests and demand that those things be heard? Oh, yeah. Like, without a doubt, I think that the Sikh community uh, carries some significant weight in in Canada's elections. Um, now, you know, I'll, I'll put an asterisk beside that, that I think a lot of voting behaviors tend to match, you know, regional or, you know, provincial or even national trends. Um, because at the end of the day, the you know, Sikhs are concerned about a lot of the issues that every Canadian's are, right? Economy, yeah. jobs, healthcare, like th- those things don't change just because you're sick. Um, but there's a lot of different uh, specific kind of issues to the Sikh community that are important. Uh, and there is an expectation, at least, uh, that the representatives we sent to Ottawa will speak on those issues, irrespective of their party. And, All right. So actually, let's uh, let's actually like take a take a dive. Uh, I'll leave yeah. in a second, but let's actually look at some of those issues. So you finish what you're going to say, and then let's run down the issues we talked about in the voter guide and see how folks landed. Yeah. Look, I, all I was going to say is that I, I think the disappointment from six isn't their involvement in elections, um, like six communities involvement. I think the six community is very active, puts up some good candidates across the country, helps parties win in certain pockets you know george shahal you know won largely because of like the sick community got behind him uh in a very tight race um but there there's there are issues with party politics that make it disappointing at times <laughs> when sick politicians within party structures uh can't adequately advocate or lobby uh, or provide perspectives from a marginalized community in an effective way. Uh, so, anyways, we can get into that in a little more, a little more deeply when when you kind of touch the individual. Topic. I think it, yeah, I think it goes pretty fairly because I think um, this has been one of the things that when you do lobbying work, you come up against. I don't know if it's apathy or if it's um, just there's either silence on sick issues, especially when you are trying to get uh, and, and folks who have been following WSO know that first years we have been trying to get sick and Hindu family safely from Afghanistan to Canada and and just haven't been able to make the impact that we wanted. Um, when you look at sick MPs, it can it can look like, well, they didn't do anything bad or wrong um, for the Sikh community. And that's a, that's a fair, I think for some of them, that's a fair thing to say. And it's really difficult to explain that it's the absence of action that kind of hurts when you're trying to, when, and I, like I've said this before, we know the names of the people we were trying to get out of Afghanistan. We know their stories. We talk to them and to just have not have that that kind of voice is is really difficult. So uh, let's start with that one. So in our in our voter guide, we talked about six in Afghanistan. Um, what were what did you see during the election? Were you surprised? Were you not surprised? 
Yeah, I, I think the preamble to this just quickly would be uh, to the kind of first point of that question is that, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the sick community or like, sorry, MPs from the sick community will say things like, well, this is just such a niche issue or uh, this is not an issue that anyone kind of comes to us and complains about. Uh, so therefore, you know, we can't do much on it. Um, and yes, I think there is a certain onus on the community to raise issues. But there's also the onus on these sick politicians to make things issues, right? Like part mm-hmm. of the reason why you're there uh, is to progressively and proactively lead on issues that are important to the community, right? To bring that perspective, irrespective of whether the mainstream uh, or others are making an issue, right? So I, I, that's kind of a cop-out that comes from our sick politicians um, where they're they're kind of pushing the onus off of themselves to help make things as important as they should be. Uh, so on the Afghan sick issue, um, I think the frustration from the sick community has been, uh, you know, uh, in particular from the WSO, is that we've been, you know, uh, advocating on this issue since 2016. Um, and that's like a conservative estimate. The, the adv- advocacy on this actually started before that. But 2016 is when it kind of became more formal. Uh, and you had like delegations at committees and, there was a lot of activity and movement, and there was a joint letter, uh, a bipartisan joint letter signed by MPs from across the aisles, except for the Liberal Party, uh, advocating for a special program uh, to bring Sikhs and Hindus over and uh, expedite their uh, the, the paperwork, or even do a direct evacuation of those still left in Afghanistan and expedite the paperwork of those outside of Afghanistan, places like India, where uh, it's at less it's been pretty clear to us that there's been a lot of feet dragging on that file. And those are different reasons for that. One was uh, just a political will to get it done and the political capital to get it done was not being readily spent uh, by the, by politicians that had the ability to do so. Um, part of it was this fear of, you know, we don't want to offend the Afghan government. You know, it's a democracy, it's a pluralistic democracy. And, you know, all, even though we knew better than that, like ISIS, Taliban, and others were moving freely within that country for a good chunk of time. And so, we, you know, there's a lot of eye rolling, I think, from folks who've been watching the Afghan sick file that, oh, intelligence never saw the Afghan taking over, uh, the Taliban taking over so quickly. Oh, it's like, like oh, how, it's how so hard blind, to hear. It's so frustrating to hear. Like, yeah, we didn't see this coming. We didn't see this coming. And these are people with like top levels of intelligence saying we didn't see it coming and we're sitting here with like google and whatsapp saying we've been telling you for years and we we could see it coming but yeah very yeah, very literally all you need for effective intelligence is whatsapp um yeah yeah and wso has uh, switched over to signal but uh, uh, you know back then 100 um no but like you know, there we we had a good understanding of what was going on on the ground. We had a good understanding of the issues that were we were facing as a community on the ground, and and our ask was very crystallized, right? Like we had a very crystal clear ask of, you know, again, expedite expedite for those outside, direct evacuate for those still inside who can't get out, and the community was willing to privately sponsor. The community was willing to do all the work to get them out and to protect them and and uh, get them on their feet and help them settle in Canada. And the answer we got from politicians a lot was like, yeah, we're working on, we're going to working on it. And fast forward, you know, five, six years later, oh man, we were caught off guard. And it's really frustrating yeah. to hear that as a community um, because, you know, this was made very clear. Now, when the Canadian government, uh, right before the election was called, announced this 20,000 person program, you know, a lot of the details were not very clear. And, you know, we realized afterwards 
you know, this didn't involve any sort of direct evacuation for those stuck. So these Afghan sticks had to get out on their own. Uh, many mm. of them have not. They have not been able to get out. They're still in Afghanistan. Uh, and that for uh, for those outside of Afghanistan, yeah, they'll be expediting the paperwork. But there's still a lot of uh, a lack of clarity around, you know, how many people can we get on that? How many people does that apply to? Because uh, there's a large Afghan community in Delhi. Do you uh, think it was as big, as big of a, an election issue as it could have been? Yeah, I, you know, the, the Afghan sick file in particular um, was, I don't want to say crowded out because I, I it was mentioned to uh, to a certain degree and mainstream did cover it to a certain degree. You know, Baltry was quoted, I think, on stuff. I, I, I was on TV, of uh, you know, talking about it here and there. Um, and I think there was some interest to kind of understand the persecuted religious minority angle here and not just, mm-hmm. you know, how do we save the Afghans that supported military operations? and. Yeah. You know, for the first week of this election, the Afghan file was was the predominant uh, issue on the campaign trail, yeah. and, and it was one of the reasons why uh, Trudeau, you know, even though he was hoping, you know, they they really believe that they were going to get a majority government by calling this thing. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons can we, they can didn't, we talk about though, like in terms of things on our list that we wanted, Bill Twenty One made a splash. I'm not sure that it made the splash that we wanted it to. Uh, but we okay. So we see in the English language debate, they bring up the question and they talk about the impacts yes. of Bill Twenty One, and uh, then it becomes oh, you know, lose uh, Justin Trudeau's losing sleep over how could you even ask if there's discrimination um, in Bill Twenty One, and Bill Twenty One bans the wearing of overt religious symbols for public employees in Quebec. So it is like, by its very nature, it's discriminatory. And World Sick Organization has been working on a legal challenge. Um, There was a lot of, yeah, so uh, the conservative leader and the liberal leader both were like, the question wasn't appropriate. Um, WSO actually made quite a bit of impact, I think, on getting that question onto people's radars and in being able to respond to it. Um, but then there was some speculation that it actually may strengthen the position of the block, having that question there. So what do, you, what do you make in general about how much emphasis we put on Bill 21? And specifically, how do you think that question landed in the English debate? Yeah, okay, I'll, uh, I'll start with the issue. I think one of the frustrations we've had at the World Sick Organization uh, and, and other religious you know, uh, advocacy organizations is uh, the lack of of dialogue or like the unwillingness to talk about uh, in honest words what Bill 21 is. And all three parties, including the NDP for some reason, uh, believe they had a shot in Quebec. Uh, and, you know, and part of, part of the, the game that they wanted to play was, well, we'll just ignore Bill 21 or we'll kind of, you know, uh, play, uh, play the silent game on it. And uh, hopefully it just goes away and we don't have to make this an issue because it makes it awkward in Quebec. It makes it it makes it awkward for us, the rest of Canada, because we're going to have to take a, uh, a kind of a slightly either a pro bill 21 position or, you know, we, we're not going to really do much, quite frankly. Um, and so you know, that's always been a frustration for us. And then the frustration from on mainstream media, who actually has over the over the years uh, and over the last few months started to pick up on the bill 21 equation a little bit more. Um, but for, uh, for us, you know, how do we make sure that like, this is a mainstream Canadian issue? Because the implications are, are not just for Quebec, right? The implications are everywhere. Um, and the experience of religious minority groups are often either erased or, or pushed aside. And so when that question gets asked by Sashi Kroll in the English debate, 
you know, she does a good job of qualifying the question appropriately so uh, that, you know, Quebec, there's examples of where folks, uh, political leaders of Quebec, um, are dismissive of or not particularly honest of the issues of like systemic racism or discrimination in Quebec. Um, and that uh, connecting that to the fact that, you know, uh, Quebec politicians uh, and, and quite frankly, large swaths of Quebec's population uh, support what is, quite frankly, a discriminatory um uh, Piece of legislation. To, to the extent that um, in my <clears throat> college classes, when I teach how systemic discrimination works, I use the example of Bill 21. So when I try and say like, oh, it's not necessarily like one person has to be discriminatory. It's in systems, policies, procedures and practices. That's my go to example. And the leaders of our country, maybe they need to come to my college classroom because they didn't. Well, seem to the, the leaders understand. of this country are the leaders of this country are offended by your lesson plan. Uh, offended. They're losing and, sleep. How they, dare they we expect, pass? They expect they expect you and your post-secondary institution and what you work at. Be a, be a good immigrant. Stay stay silent. Yeah. Don't ask questions. Yeah. Let me take Apolog- away your rights. Don't ask questions. Apologize. Yeah. Apologize immediately, please. That premise was offensive to me. Um, so, you know, this has this question. This is a little back and forth. The leaders all stay silent on the stage because they know Saatchi's right. This thing is discriminatory. Quebec needs to come to terms. Uh, Quebec's political leadership needs to come to terms with issues of racism, discrimination, and systemic racism in Quebec and elsewhere. But this question is about Bill 21, and that's Quebec. Afterwards, you know, when they start realizing that Quebec is upset about this question because it got rightfully called out on a national stage, it's like put aside uh, the fact that you're you can't speak on put aside the fact that you're not willing to speak on the issue of Bill 21 truthfully. You're gonna you're gonna ask the debate consortium Sachi Curl to apologize for questions who uh, premise the question on the fact that Bill Twenty One is discriminatory, and that's what I found incredibly offensive is the 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 cowardice of our uh, our federal parties and the leadership uh, and respond to that question and instead of using it as an opportunity to really talk about the issues of discrimination and racism that is anchored within Bill Twenty One. They instead pivoted, gaslit like everyone, and then yeah. said, you guys need to apologize for asking the question about racism. So then it becomes that a question that premises itself on the truth that there's racism in this uh, bill is more offensive than the bill, which is actually racist. Uh, yeah. And I think if there's like a great example of how in Canada we do a terrible job of discussing these issues uh, I don't think there's anything better than the one we just saw uh, over this election campaign. And NCCM called out the federal parties. WSO called out the parties. Others yeah, called out the National Canadian parties. Council of Muslims. Yes, you know, yeah. everyone called out these guys. And then one of the the, the kind of debate uh, from the other side was, well, look at the rest of Canada. They don't understand Quebec. It's like we have Quebec members in our organization. Okay, like we like our VP Quebec literally yeah. is living in exile. <laughs> Yes. In British Columbia, oh, because she can't work in this damn province uh, because of a racist Bill Twenty One, and it's it's so frustrating. Like because it's I I don't know I I'm pretty sure that's the definition of like gaslighting someone. Oh um, yeah, totally. And, and deflecting in like kind of this outrageous way. And then the other side of it too is like those folks um, 
that were like, oh, you know, as part of a racialized, uh, members of racialized communities, uh, BIPOC communities within Quebec, you know, asking like this questions like this. Well, now look, now everyone in Quebec is talking about Bill 21. This doesn't help like BIPOC people. It's like, look, I get it. But the truth is, this is a discriminatory bill that is targeting religious minorities, which are disproportionately BIPOC, right? And mm-hmm. we have to understand that re- discrimination against religious minorities happens elsewhere in this country. And I'm sorry, as a sick Canadian, even though I don't live in Quebec, what is happening to my sick brothers and sisters in Quebec is equally as worrisome to me as it is for those in Quebec, because that those type of discriminatory policies have been fought coast to coast in this country, and they continue to be fought coast to totally. coast in this country. Um, and so I, I think we kind of, uh, some folks in the in the Canadian dialogue post debate, where they're just all caught up in the the premise of this question, whether it was appropriate or not, you know, really, uh, really missed the the forest for the trees. Uh, and it was mm-hmm. such a frustrating mm-hmm. process to kind of witness and 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 see. Uh, and it was really problematic because we 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 did a disservice to the the question that was appropriately uh, premised by Sachi Curl during that debate, and instead Absolutely. deflected and gaslit everyone. All right, so we are going to finish this election debrief on a positive note. And the question I thought of was, what is something you are hopeful from sick members of parliament moving forward? So we have this uh, $600 million cabinet shuffle, frame it however you will. What is one thing that you're like excited about or hopeful about? I don't know. I don't have hope <laughs> you're, you're dated. You've been doing this too long. <laughs> You know what I have hope, and I have hope in the sick community to continue yes, to hold yes. our elected officials accountable because that's the only way this works. And um, you know, electing sick members of parliament is is important. I, it's it's a useful exercise. Um, do we should we be spending maybe a little less resources on politics and a little bit more resources or on organizational institution building? Uh, yes. But sending people to parliament is still an important part of us, you know, uh, you know, doing or being part of the conversations in this country. But once sick members of parliament enter a party system, we have now seen pretty consistently that party politics will trump community concerns. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the only time that community concerns trump party politics is when the community mobilizes and advocates unapologetically and fearlessly when when the time is appropriate. Uh, you know, when, for example, the public safety terror report, save Afghan six, ask Canadian six. Like there's so many different examples of where this has happened and when it happened at an appropriate time. Uh, that I think set a very important precedent and a reminder for us that we can never uh, take things for granted. And it doesn't matter if we have 10, 15, 20 sick MPs. Um, at the end of the day, the community organizing and, and fighting for its own rights is what's going to get results. Awesome. And here's what I'm excited for. We're probably going to do this again in 18 months. I'm already tired about that, but that's 18 <laughs> months for our massive influx of international students. More and more of them are going to become voters every year. And this time we needed our sick community who could vote to be their voice. And I'm excited to see moving forward how these folks are able to are, are recognized for the heavy hitters that they are. The United States of America and India. 
What a beautiful combination of global powers. A little bit of sarcasm there. Um, <laughs> we saw this past week, Modi came to the United States um, to visit and to have a meeting with Joe Biden, amongst other things. Um, they are part of the what's referred to as the Indo-Pacific Quad. So there's these four countries that um, the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia, what they have in common is essentially being afraid of China or wanting to strategically take China down, which hasn't that been the topic of Canadian conversations. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Modi went to the U.S. Um, he did this whirlwind meet and greet. He um, was apparently given like artifacts to take back home to India. I was reading some really interesting things about that. And coinciding with that, the um, Hudson Institute, which is a political think tank in the United States, releases an article called Pakistan's Destabilization Playbook, Khalistan Separatist Activism, Se- Khalistan Separatist Activism Within the U.S. Um, what do you think? What do you think of uh, this think tank? Does, does it seem a little familiar? Yeah, uh, it's a little bit of deja vu. A little bit of deja vu. Uh, Modi goes to the U.S. first trip since uh, the Biden administration came to power, which also means first trip since uh, his uh, his famous trip uh, under Trump in the Howdy Modi type events there that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Houston. Um, so Modi goes to the USA, uh, not met with much fanfare. Well, it depends on who media. you're reading, right? The the, <laughs> the state media from India was like, oh, there was all these crowds waiting for him. And then you, no. it's like a handful of people that showed up to cheer him on. Well, and, and he, he wasn't given the five-star treatment, right? And and, and, and yeah. people didn't notice that. Uh, it was a funny little clip. Uh, it was, this reporter goes up to this guy, like, banging on a drum for Modi. And, mm. and it's like, oh, why are you here? You know, you're here uh, because you love Modi. And he's just like, oh, no, I, I'm... You know, I'm here because I was just told to be here. Kind of thing. So <laughs> it's like, uh, so you you have, um, you know, this lackluster arrival. Uh, U.S. media doesn't really talk about Modi all that much. Uh, Gummel, uh Harris and uh, Biden both, you know, s- subtle little jabs at Modi that you need to ensure that democracy is protected and the rights and pillars that are considered critical for democracy are protected. Uh, so you know, a, a little embarrassing uh, because oh. it's, it was definitely not the fanfare that Modi received. When yeah, I feel like I mean, I was looking for the story because I'm interested in what happens, um, especially because it's human rights and it's India and this Khalistan narrative popped up again. But if you weren't looking for the story, I'm not sure that it really came across anywhere. Yeah, it was very yeah, it was very um, damp, right? Like it mm. it wasn't there was no hype associated with the fact that Modi was in America. And so, uh, and I, to be honest with you, I, I think if there's one thing the farmer protest has actually uh, resulted in internationally, is that the Modi brand is absolutely damaged, right? Um, uh, internationally, especially with communities where there's large Sikh diaspora. Um, and then as well as like the scrutiny that has now been increasingly applied to India uh, and its state of its democracy and, and liberties within the country, and how they've been pummeling, like plummeting uh, under the Modi regime. Now that's not saying much because it wasn't all that great under the Congress either. But um, it's been noticed. Uh, the rise of the Hinduatta and like RSS type forces have been noticed, uh, and so the shine is kind of off, uh, especially in the American market on on India and, and what it actually means. 
Uh, but there's there's there is as far as like um, India, sorry, America's like foreign policy objectives go, a value in keeping India close. Uh, and and you kind of mentioned it there in the the introduction to this to this part where, you know, China's the actual threat uh, to America's hegemony and. China is a, a another superpower, right? And we, the balance of power uh, in a global context has shifted uh, quite a bit over the last, you know, decade or two. Um, and India's role here is, is more or less uh, playing a uh, a kind of check on China as part of the Quad. So, like, mostly mm-hmm. does come out of America with like some of these, you know, defense-like treaties and agreements um, that are, I think. As far as India is concerned, or like India-U.S. relationships are important, but it was a fairly lackluster uh, trip as far as hype goes, um, yeah. or like outcomes go beyond Quad, uh, which is again pretty considerable. So I'm not dismissing that. Uh, but the other kind of interesting, I think, point here for um, six in America is that the Hudson Report. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote from it because I actually have it open in front of me. Hudson is, if you're, for our longtime listeners and uh, our fans of our boy Terry Malowski, um, you'll know that McDonald Laurier Institute is a Canadian think tank, using scare quotes, think tank, um, who had <laughs> Terry Malowski uh, publish this article about Khalistan being a production of Pakistan. And the gist of it is that Pakistan is invested in creating Khalistan, carving Khalistan out of India and is therefore funding everything. Uh, the WSO was quoted in there. Jaskarn, who uh, Terry Molesky is obsessed with. If you if you follow Terry's uh, tweets and his writing, he's a huge Jaskarn fan, constantly quoting him. He quotes Jaskarn in that report. And then this report comes out right before um, Modi visits the U.S. And... And and this is where Terry's words, and and in a response to uh, Terry's original report, a lot of Sikh scholars came out, and you can look it up on Sikh scholars' response, and uh, they actually said, like, this is completely, there was no fact-checking, there was no, like, basic editing, the cover of the report was plagiarized, like, there's... Um, the people who wrote the foreword, Ojal Dosanj and Shavloy Majumdar, are like quoting themselves. They're lifting their own words from another work. It was a garbage report, but it, it beca- in the world of Terry Milowski, it doesn't matter that your writing is untrue because it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So these reports beget reports and they all quote each other and they all cite each other and they create knowledge. And then after a while, it doesn't matter that the original source of knowledge was baseless. So the Hudson um, Institute writes this report. And in their report, it says, quote, a report by Terry Malosky for the McDonald Laurier Institute provides details of a recent Khalistani group, uh, of recent Khalistani group activities in Canada. To produce a similar report for the U.S., Huston Institute's South and Central Asia program assembled a group of South Asia experts to evaluate the 55 interlinked Kashmiri and Khalistani groups currently operating within the United States. So they state up front, we're doing this because Terry did it. And we know through analysis of Terry's report that his report was not based on facts or proper research. So here's here's what we have. And I guess the question is, how is how's your blood pressure after re- reading the Hudson report? Oh, um, you know what? I'm I'm so dead inside already that it doesn't even matter anymore. 
you know, I, I, I kind of investigated this a little bit and looked into it. I, I wrote a piece that's on Boz if anyone's interested about it. Um, where the Hudson's like this interesting body, and, and the parallels to McDonald Laurier are there's a lot. Like the parallels are really tight between the two. Uh, now, that's that's maybe a little unfair to Hudson because I think they're seen as a much more legitimate uh, and, and influential voice than MLI is. Um, but I, I think they kind of serve similar similar. Um, they they serve similar interests. And in this case, what you have is uh, a report, again, that makes a lot of the same type of errors um, that the MLI Molesky report was criticized for. Um, the kind of loose connections, poor research, poor reference structure, um, and just you know, really kind of illogical conclusions they make based on the evidence that's provided. Um, they do. They, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just say, like, as a, just one example, oh, you know, America really needs to crack down on Khalistani or Sikh activists uh, and, and violence. And then they don't actually provide any examples of violence. And mm. the only thing they kind of talk about over and over again is peaceful protests that are that mimic the kind of languages you see in other progressive protests in America, like Black Lives Matter. And it's yeah, just like, it's just outrageous, and it's kind of like the same kind of loose connect, like loose uh, conclusions uh, and connections that Molesky was making, um, and that like none of them have any examples of like what's this recent kind of like violence that you guys are trying to uh, shed light on. Like there, there is none. You guys are not referencing anything. It's, it's all scary. made up. It's scary. Um, and then they, they do have policy recommendations at the end. I'm going to read the first two. So one to include all groups responsible for terrorist attacks in India in its list of designated global terrorist groups. Design and then two, designate as terrorists the various individuals that India and U.S. intelligence and law enforcement have established as being connected to designated terrorist entities. So again, if you're listening to our podcast, we've explained how um, exchanging intelligence between Canada and India has led to India planting false intelligence in Canada, sending CSIS RCMP on wild goose chases. It's all to discredit the Sikh community. And again, Justin Trudeau, when he went on his India trip, he started this intelligence, bilateral intelligence sharing again. And historically, it has made us unsafe in Canada. And it has essentially allowed India to dictate how we are framed in our own country where we are not doing anything illegal and cut to two seconds later, we were on the terror report. This is proposing the same thing that terrorists, that essentially India will get to decide who is a terrorist, that list will be shared and that both countries and their intelligence, shared intelligence will decide who are terrorists and then the proper actions will be taken. So what that could mean is what it has meant in Canada, which is that anyone who asks for Khalistan, which is not a terrorist action, which is not illegal, um, it, anyone who asks for the right to self-determination, anyone who threatens the quote-unquote sovereignty of India will be considered a terrorist. And I think that that kind of like, that kind of subtle policy recommendation showing up at the end of a report can actually have very dangerous repercussions. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. And I think that's one of the things that's frustrating about all of this is the timing and it was done obviously with the Modi trip in mind. 
Uh, and it's India using, uh, in this case, both Sikh activism and Kashmiri activism, totally legitimate activism, uh, to kind of drum up a suspicion that it's being done in cahoots with China and Pakistan. So therefore, like not only just stripping away the agency of these communities to kind of protest or air, they'll share their grievances uh, with the Indian state, uh, but then it's it's being used uh, as a sword to uh, push uh, America into a more hawkish uh, position against China and Pakistan. So to serve uh, the foreign affair uh, geopolitical objectives of of India, and so essentially they're they're trying to dress up six and Kashmiris as these as these boogeymen. Uh, to demonize otherwise, you know, legitimate forms of political protest on issues like Khalistan or human rights advocacy um, or, or whatever it may be, in in order uh, to achieve other goals, right? And what, what's the cost of all that? It's the hard-earned reputation of the Sikh community. Uh, it's the kind of misinformation, actually disinformation that is spread about our legitimate grievances uh, and our rights that we will continue to fight for. Uh, and it casts a uh, clouds of suspicion on all forms of activism in the Sikh community, right? And that report does name drop totally legitimate mainstream Sikh organizations as well, right? Like it name drops Sikh Coalition, it name drops Khalsa Aid, I think it name drops Jakarta as well, if I remember correctly. Like it name drops all these people, it stuffs them all into this report. So as to create a narrative that irrespective of what these organizations may claim to be fighting for, they need to all be treated for suspicion and be assumed to be tools of China and Pakistan uh, and that America needs to treat them this way if it actually has uh, an, an interest to achieve its geopolitical goals that uh, tend to align with India in putting China on check and to be more uh, critical of pa Pakistan. And so it's a very devious play, and, and it, it comes at the cost of our people, which is really frustrating for us to watch. And I think, um, you know, for us in Canada at least, we see this and we kind of go like, Oh, we've we've seen this dance before, right? Like we've we've seen this in action before. And for those in America, don't think this is just a nothing situation. And I'm not saying they are, um, but don't be dismissive of what you're seeing, because this has very long-term impacts, even if it's not incredibly obvious at first. Because there will be another report that cites the Hudson report, which cites the Molesky report, which cites a bunch of news stories from and which cites a bunch of made up Indian intelligence, which we've you know more than not saw in action in the West Midlands three case, which I think we're going to talk about in a bit, uh, where Indian intelligence is bad faith. It's made up. Uh, it's it's designed, again, for the same purpose of achieving a multitude of other goals, but also to continue demonizing and keeping a foot on uh, sick activism. Uh, and, and it's all, all really dangerous. And that brings us right to our third topic for this episode, the West Midlands Three. And what uh, an incredible story and what a uh, mirror I felt like I was 
read about six in Canada. It links so much to the Hudson report and the way that India is able to control six and other countries um, there. And again, I know we've already plugged Buzz news, but this is where I got most of my information on this story. So I'm going to be sharing stuff from the Buzz article written by Man Kamal Singh. So um, the British, um, he's a foreign secretary. He, um, Dominic Robb goes to India and seconds later, there are terrorists in England again. And this is, I mean, this mirrors so much Justin Trudeau having his disastrous India trip coming back and then us being labeled as terrorists. So Dominic Robb, former British foreign secretary goes to India. Um, he comes back and then there are three family homes in the West Midlands that are raided with no new intelligence. And these people are being um, accused of participating in a murder in India. And there's a threatened extradition of them. There was actually quite a sound legal response. The Sikh community was mobilized. Um, the people who um, people questioned the intelligence, the, the seeds that India was planting, I think when you look at examples of foreign interference, be it in Canada, be it in the United States, be it in England, um, the governments don't seem to be protecting the citizens of their own country, and they seem to be valuing the relationship between India and their country more so than their own citizens. Having something like um, an exchange of intelligence both ways and opening up those doors is a nod to India's power, is is a token that you give them to say, we want to build a relationship with you. And essentially, the way I see it is that you're handing your citizens over and you're saying to India, yeah, we value you as a trade partner. And to show you that we value you, we're going to hand the six and their safety over to you. Um, how, what did it feel like for you to to see all of this go down with the West Midlands three? Yeah, this is a pretty uh, crazy story, and I and I think it touches upon and it kind of nicely ties together everything we we discussed. You you have a trip. Well, you know we got to actually go back a little bit more than that. You have Brexit, which puts incredible pressure on uh, the Boris Johnson government to lock in new trade deals uh, to make up for you know, loss economic activity from leaving the EU. Uh, and so one of the, the partners they look towards in kind of achieving that goal is is India. And so you have a, a trip from Dominic Robb to India. He comes back almost immediately after coming back. Uh, you know, these three six are arrested in a raid. And to your point, no, we, we've learned now that not on the basis of any new intelligence or evidence, Right. Uh, and, you know, we can, again, speak from a Canadian experience where it's almost most definitely likely that there was pressure from India to make these arrests. Uh, again, A, to demonize Sikh advocacy abroad uh, and to continue to put pressure on the Sikh community, both inside and outside India, uh, but then also to achieve other foreign objectives, you know, of demonizing Pakistan or, or you know, Positioning India as like the only bulwark against like aggression. But from when, when we ended life. up on the terror report after Justin Trudeau's visit to India, there was no new evidence. It was citing the Air India bombing, um, and it feels exactly. like it, yeah. There's it's just, it felt very similar to see this here to be like oh it's just it it seems like it's that easy for someone in India to sit there and say those Khalistanis they're trying to do something bad, and that our own governments will act against us. Yeah, and the mistake that's made is. Um, when we frame India as a liberal, pluralistic democracy like the UK or like Canada, 
Um, and that's a loaded term, and I know people can critique a lot of that, but that's at least how it's framed by mainstream actors or political actors. Well, India is a fellow pluralistic liberal democracy. Therefore, we could trust its institutions when they say these six are terrorists. Our intelligence reports say X. Our intelligence reports say Y. Um, and what we learn is that over time, you know, the Sikh community mobilizes. There's a lot of pressure. They sign petitions. They're protesting. Um, they hire very good lawyers uh, to challenge uh, the... Uh, and it's not a deportation order because these are actually British citizens. These are mm -hmm. British passport holders that were being threatened with extradition uh, to India uh, for crimes they did not commit. And you could be like born and raised in England and and someone in India could say something and your own government could send you on a plane to this India. This is, this is, uh, just read Gordon, this is like Canada, this is like Peel Police raiding your house <laughs> and then raiding my house, arresting us for Don't give them ideas. Don't. <laughs> we, we didn't commit. And you and I are like sitting in jail, like, holy shit, we're, we're going to be extradited to India it wouldn't last a minute in India jail. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, maybe not. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to try to paint myself as some hero here. Um, but like that, that's like how nuts is that? So there, there's a unique feature of this case, right? And uh, Jasveer Singh writes of Sikh PA, he wrote a piece on Boz where he kind of like breaks down like, other examples of where something like this has happened that's similar. But what's the, uh, the outstanding piece of like newness to this case was that it was an attempt to extradite three British citizens that were born and raised in Britain, um, which is nuts that the British government under Preeti Patel, who's, who's the minister in charge, would sign the extradition order to allow that to happen. Like, the, how crazy is that? Yeah. And Preeti Patel has connections with the RSS. She's, a, you know, very fond of the Modi Hindu government. But anyways, that's a conversation for a different time. Um, so these, these three, uh, these three men are in jail. And what we learned in court is the evidence that was provided by the Indian government, uh, the, the evidence that was provided by Indian intelligence was just outright false, right? It was outright false. Mm -hmm. And the sad part is they should have always known that was outright false. And it was fabricated. Uh, these three lads were uh, you know, were questioned beforehand, and there was nothing of that would consider them like suspicious actors for a murder in which they were not even in India at the time for. Um, and so it, it was completely made up. And the fact that the UK government was ready to uh, to extradite them is what's absolutely frightening, uh, because the precedent it set again, not just for six uh, our six brothers and sisters in the UK, but for our six brothers and sisters across the world that advocate fearlessly on sick issues, um, you know, it puts them all at jeopardy and the precedent it sets. Uh, and and a, a lot of folks feel that the only reason the UK government went above and beyond to do this, you know, aside from maybe you know, personal fondness of Preet Patel with the Indian government, uh, is, again, this pressure to close a trade deal uh, with the Indian government. All right, so thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. Thank you so much for coming back and doing this election debrief and talking through these topics with us. Jaskarn, um, this is, I mean, the common thread through everything seems to be 
foreign interference. So uh, to our listeners, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open. Don't take anything for granted. Keep listening. Uh, anything, anything else you want to say to our listeners and before you hop off and maybe we'll hear from you again in six months? Yeah, hopefully six months or bust. <laughs> All right. We will Hi. hear from you soon. And everyone, subscribe and listen to Boz News and the awesome Bontech reporting they're doing over there. And we'll catch you next time on the next episode of Ask Canadian Six. Wahigurjika Kalsa. Wahigurjika Kalsa. Wahigurjika Kalsa.